is there a place for the devil in the modern world, for the modern mind? Or should we look for the devil under every rock? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Today on the podcast, I'll be interviewing Richard Beck. Richard is the professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. He's a blogger and speaker, uh, has offered, authored several books, including Unclean. His uh, published research covers topics as diverse as psychology of profanity and why Christian bookstore art is so bad. Beck leads a Bible study each week for inmates at a maximum security prison, and we're going to talk about his new book, Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil, for Doubters and the Disenchanted. If After listening, if you're interested in more of what uh, Richard has to say or write about, you can uh, read him online at experimentaltheology.blogspot.com. That's experimentaltheology.blogspot.com. You pick up the interview. We start with a, a little bit about how long Richard has been at Abilene Christian, what took him there, and then we take off on a discussion of the book. As always, hopefully this will be a help to those of you who are exploring or interested in the intersection of pastoral work and theology, pastoral ministry and theology, pastoring and theology, and that can be from a vocational perspective or from just a a person who understands that everyone does pastoral work. That is the art of caring and connecting uh, life and faith and the experiences of real human beings. And so uh, when you find that helpful, well, I hope you find it helpful week in and week out, sure would appreciate if you would give us a rating over on iTunes. Now, if you do that, it may take a day or two for that to show up, so don't think that it didn't take. Just go ahead and log into your iTunes account, find Pathological by looking for toddlittleton.net, and leave a review. It'll show up in a day or two, maybe even later that day. Uh, if you don't have that much time, uh, give us a five-star rating. It helps us get found, and maybe there'll be others who happen onto the podcast and find it helpful as we continue to provide resources for the pastor theologian. And now, here's my conversation with Richard Beck. So how long have you been um, there in Abilene, at uh, Abilene Christian? I've been here about, I think it's about 17 years now. Oh, wow. I've been here for a long, long time, yeah. Are you originally yeah. from Texas? No, I'm from Pennsylvania oh, originally, wow. yeah. um, but the school, ACU, is part of our sister schools, and so I was a student here okay. uh, as an undergraduate. So I came down south for school, um, and my wife's in Dallas, and so, um, you know, fell in love with Texas and her, and sure. um, stayed, stayed, down, you know, stayed down here yeah. uh, after my schooling was over, yeah. Well, I like Texas. So I guess I'm a transplanted Texan. There you go. That, I, li- you know, I like so. Pennsylvania. I don't know where, where you're from there, but I, I've only been in and around Philadelphia a little bit. Uh, oh, yeah. Out toward uh-huh. uh, Hatfield and, and uh, mm-hmm. been to Lansdale and, and that area. Yeah. I'm from the western, I'm from Erie, which is northwest, but oh, I, know, okay. I, know the, okay. I know the eastern side uh, really well. Yeah, okay. it's all, you know, Pennsylvania is a great state we like to go up there during the summertime escape the heat a little bit and oh, enjoy yeah. summer you know a couple, couple weeks with my family up there Certainly. so yeah 
Well, let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, Great. I, uh, I have to tell you, uh, I, I couldn't put it down. Uh, I know that's what Rachel Held Evans said, but, and I don't know <laughs> if that just makes the back cover, but I really couldn't put it down. In fact, I, I got the book in the mail. And I told my wife, I said, I don't know what you have planned, but I'm going to finish this book by tomorrow. And um, that was in the midst of several things going on, and, and, and I was able to pull it off. Uh, and it just uh, it captured my imagination being someone who has wrestled with, um, I think you described it as the uh, experience of between enchantment and disenchantment. Mm-hmm. And so it really uh, was quite an intriguing read. And, um, and so I want to talk about a few things that really caught my attention. We won't try to help everybody read the book uh, on, on this little conversation, but uh, there were a couple things that I really liked that you did. And first, the first thing I, I, I liked, and maybe I, I'm, I hope I'm not putting um, you know, words uh, in your mouth, uh, so to speak, but you really do a good job of describing what I'm going to call an improvisational posture toward uh, difficult mm-hmm. issues. And so for our, those who are listening who might be intrigued, having not read, read your book, uh, describe where, that, where, where did you arrive at that? How did you, how did you come up with that as, a, as an illustration for how to look at difficult subjects? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been writing on the internet for quite some time about theology and and politics and things like that. And I I don't know what it is, but it seems like every time you have a conversation with anybody about a theological topic or that that we are immediately faced with the dichotomy, It, it has to be this or that. And it takes somebody to keep showing up and say, but we don't have to choose here. We can, we, both of these views can be mutually beneficial uh, we can iron can sharpen iron here, and so it wasn't my, my so I so anyway that idea that we don't always have to choose that there can be we can learn something even from positions theological positions that I might not go all the way down the field with, but there's going to be things that will enrich and deepen and expand how I see things, and I've always felt that way. I have a very eclectic attitude toward my reading and, and theologians and I'll read outside of my faith tradition and I find it all very enriching. And and so I knew going into this book that that people would want to choose up sides. Well he doesn't believe this or he believes that and that that lines up with me or it doesn't line up with me. And I wanted to kind of at the very beginning of the book tell people to, to relax and maybe have a more open posture and say, whether or not we agree on everything Hopefully, what I share in the book through narrative and biblical analysis and, and just uh, anecdotes um, would would enrich however you approach a topic like the devil. Yeah, I, I, it is a fantastic illustration. In fact, it wasn't two weeks later that um, uh, a fellow uh, approached me after uh, one of our Sunday morning uh, worship times, and uh, we were talking about a particular subject, and he was describing moving to this particular place you're, you're talking about. And uh, he's trying to put words to it. And I said, well, I just read this book where um, the author used improvisation as a great illustration where, where yes, shuts down, yes shuts down conversation in one direction, no shuts it down in another conversation. And if you think about an improvisational um, uh, comedy team, it, a yes and no shuts it down, but you you offered the yes and, and, and that just was like a light bulb that went on for him 
And, and it's been something I've used a few times uh, since reading your description. So I really like the, the uh, uh, description of eclectic reading, reading outside your tradition. That, that is something that has been you know, my, my habit now for a while. Um, I don't know for the same reasons you did, but they, it certainly has been beneficial to me. Yeah. Yeah. I should probably go unpack a little bit about that. Yes. In the book, I use the kind of fundamental law of comedy improv that whenever there's a premise given to you in an improvisational skit, that you should receive it with affirmation and yes, but that you then add something to it. And so that's the number one law of comedy improv is yes. And so yes, I adopt that for as a theological posture, but I I should also tell your, your listeners that I also got that idea from Samuel Wells wrote a book called, I think it's called improvisation, the drama of Christian ethics, where he uses that as as a, as a way of doing ethics and Christian thought. So um, it's not wholly my idea. So I borrowed it from Samuel Wells and I should mention that my wife is a theater teacher. So it's on my radar. Good, good, good. Yeah. Well, we, we need all the resources we can get, no matter where they come from. So that's, uh, especially when you start trying to think how imaginatively you can address, again, you know, an issue that tends to uh, pitch people in an either-or camp. And so in, in thinking about that, you you uh, actually reference one of my favorite childhood shows. I'm, I'm guessing we both watch uh, Saturday morning cartoons and Scooby-Doo. That's right. And yeah, and uh, um, and you talk about the Scooby Dooification of the Bible. Could you kind of describe that a little bit and why it's important for the the subject of uh, uh, demons and the devil for doubters and the disenchanted? Well, I, I use Scooby Doo to describe these kind of five hundred year journey the West has taken where we've gone from an, uh, what Charles Taylor calls an enchanted world, a world full of witches and spooks and ghosts and spells and the occult, um, to, to our kind of modern era where it is disenchanted. And so we have a more mechanistic view, a more scientific and technological view of the reality around us. And, and the Scooby-Doo episode traces that, at least the early ones do where the beginning of the story is enchanted. There is a goblin or a ghoul or a spook haunting the city. But the kids, you know, get skeptical and they unmask the spook and reveal a human agent, uh, somebody up to no good, Mr. Jenkins, the greedy banker. And so not only do I use Scooby-Doo to kind of describe that history that that has happened in the West, I then use it as a way, as almost a, a hermeneutic that people use as they read scripture and when they encounter supernatural or spooky aspects of the Bible that they struggle with, to help them get over, they want to affirm the story, um, despite their skepticism or doubt. And so what they do is they will tend to look for the human or the moral element in the story, and that's the part that they will latch on to as the part that they can affirm is true or at least connect with in their day-to-day lives. So that whole process of looking for the moral or the human element in a story is, I just use a funny term and call it the scooby Dooification way of reading the Bible. Well, if you were going to uh, maybe target a uh, an audience that might be uh, less skeptical about believing those bits of the story, is there a way that they also might... Uh, inadvertently practice the same thing, but in another direction. I, I guess what I guess I guess what I mean uh, to say is, I grew up probably um, 
you know, um, enchanted. Mm-hmm. And I'm certain that a lot of uh, my friends who might listen uh, would would not be necessarily those who are skeptical or doubting uh, those uh, parts of the story, but they often uh, engage people who are, especially if they're dealing with college students, college graduates, and and such who've you know been been steeped in kind of maybe a, a, at least an awareness of scientific method and and uh, mm-hmm. uh, requirements of uh, verification, validation of truth claims, and that sort of thing. And, and, and so I'm wondering, I don't have anything like a hidden thing I'm thinking, but I'm just wondering a lot of times when you can describe, um, how it works in one direction, since we often pitch things in the left or right, it works in the other direction. It, I may be just chasing a, uh, a vain, a vain rabbit there, but I'm just wondering, is that likely? In the, in the sense that, that the, the enchanted people are looking for the human element as well in the story? Yes, yes. Yeah. No, I, I think that's true. Um, I, I think the tendency is to, you know, reduce it to some sort of tangible experience that, they, that they've bumped into, and, they, and they, read, they read the scripture through the filters of their own experiences, uh, and therefore their experiences become the interpretive grid that they use for scripture. Yeah, I think that is always a, a perennial temptation uh, on either side of the ledger. Um, and it seems like to me that the tendency is to reduce um, Christianity to, to morals. Uh, yes. I think conservatives have their own vision of what a moral person looks like. I think liberals have a different vision of what a moral person looks like. But the Christianity then becomes about being that moral person. And I think both sides do that in this debate. They, de- they define you have a vision of evil and goodness that fits their paradigm. Um, but I think both sides, because of that, leave big chunks of the scripture out of the story. Yeah, I, 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 I agree completely. Um, and when you think about someone who would be comfortable using, uh, say, the traditional categories. And maybe, maybe a better way to approach that is to, is to go back to your own experience as you describe it. Uh, and um, I think your chapter uh, titled Holy Ghost Conga Lines yeah. was, was a little bit of the um, point at which it seemed there was an intersection of your own... Um, wrestling with enchantment, disenchantment, and then you run into a group of people who um, use a language that now challenges the re- the fact that maybe you have let that go at some point. Right, yeah. Well, like, like, like you'd mentioned, I, I work in college contacts, and I'm a psychologist, and so I'm steeped in the scientific method, and I work with lots of skeptical people, and so, yes, I had this, there's a lot of autobiography in the story about my own doubts and disenchantment, or just finding the whole language of the devil fairly embarrassing and awkward. I just didn't know what to do about it. And, and before your listeners think that's a minority opinion, that's now the majority opinion. Yes, it is. Um, even, even, in, even if the pastor might be enchanted, there, there's a lot of skeptics or questions going on out in the pews that people are not vocalizing. Correct. And so I think the book would be really useful for pastors that are trying to connect 
and, and bring them along into that more enchanted context. Now, for me, it happened by accident. I, well, not accident, but I ended up going to a mission church plant on a very poor part of my town where the spirituality monks there, my friends who are dealing with homelessness and addiction, they're on parole. Uh, it's a very enchanted, charismatic, small P Pentecostal spirituality. And they spoke about the devil and demons all the time. Kind of there I was, a skeptical, educated, you know, professor, uh, trying to live life and share life and honor their experiences. And so I, I, the book was written almost as a form of self-help for me to learn to engage and take seriously their experiences. So I, I wouldn't speak about the devil uh, ironically or in a paternalistic way. I didn't want to be fake about it. And, and so it was a pastoral challenge. You, you're going to be asked to pray prayers of deliverance over people. And if you have all these skepticism, skeptical questions in your mind, you, you, there's a disjoint there. Worlds were colliding. And so that chapter is about my experience about trying to live and share life with a, a very charismatic group of people who are very different from the way I see. I had seen the world prior to sharing life there. Yeah, I think that was um, one of the uh, uh, many resonating sections of the book because um, we uh, uh, Baptists have moved into more of our heads. It's it's a bit of a caricature, I know. And then, of course, if if somebody sees some of what goes on in our very religious state, I'm pretty sure they're questioning if we are really in our heads. Um, but, but, um, at that particular moment, you encounter someone whose, uh, background and their, uh, spiritual vocabulary, um, really comes off as though, uh, every wrong thing that happens in their life is tied to, uh, Satan, uh, the devils at work and that sort of thing. And, um, when you break down uh, and have a conversation and you listen carefully, uh, in all frankness, what I more often than not hear is is a shifting of responsibility for participants in a particular story that if you're going to personify them in some sort of evil way, it 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 it's really stretching the vocabulary a bit to the point where I think, um, you know, the extreme vision would be finding a demon at every rock or behind, you know, lurking yeah. behind every door. And so your description was was really helpful to have an appreciation for that particular vocabulary, but not necessarily capitulate all the way where you now are looking for a demon under every rock and, and uh, or behind every door. Is that is that fair description? Yeah, I think so. I think what happens is, you know, on, on the progressive or liberal or skeptical side, if I want to group all those kinds of people together, they just find this whole question increasingly awkward and difficult to reconcile with kind of a modern, you know, experience, our modern experiences. But on the other side, then the kind of finding a devil or a demon under every rock to the devil's blame, not just for every moral failing, the devil made me do it, but for every inconvenience of your life. So from computer malfunctioning, I've heard yes. in, in Right places, there's a computer malfunctions because the devil doesn't want to worship service to proceed, and and I, I think there's some real problems on that side as well. Um, I, t- I think the thing that 
both groups miss is the kind of day-to-day effort it takes to follow Jesus in the world. Like, my book is a big point. It's that if either you find the conversation so awkward you don't talk about the devil, or you talk about the devil as, um, a, you know, a daily minor irritant, then, then you're missing the deeper struggles to, to be an agent of grace and love in the world. And and so I want to use the devil to kind of focus us on where the struggle really actually is. And I don't think it's located in either of the two extremes I've just described. Yeah. I, I, I really, I, I love that turn uh, in the book. And, and to me, one of the pivot points was when you were drawing out the way that, um, uh, in, in in a particular context, you were drawing out the way that the say progressives, liberals were reducing uh, spiritual warfare, any talk of Satan or demons, to social justice to uh, such a degree that you then could look at your opponent and you begin dehumanizing them. Which I think actually the same thing happens in the other direction, you know. And it's mm-hmm. it's you, you start talking about a conflict you have with somebody, and you you say that the devil's at work, and inadvertently you don't realize that what you were just saying is because someone doesn't agree with me, the devil must be in them, you know. Exactly. So so it works both directions, and then and I and that pivot I I I want to say um, uh, came in at least for me came in um, your chapter on the Wizard of Oz. And, uh, oh, and, yeah. and when you start moving to talking about what actually gets at that deeper issue, what, what really is the thing we're missing when we're either demonizing uh, those who disagree with our political agenda or we disagree with those in our social setting who are irritants that we uh, blanketly say Satan's at work um, and don't realize that people are thinking that you're telling them that Satan's in them. And all the while missing uh, this sentence, um, love is what prevents the political struggle from dehumanizing and demonizing flesh and blood. And while I think that was a that was targeting, say, the more progressive liberal side, I think the same thing applies uh, in the other direction, that, that love is what prevents us from vilifying the person who's been our social irritant, where we, fa- we face conflict and we want to say, well, man, the devil, the devil's, he, he's, he's causing a problem. Yeah. Well, immediately that particular language stirs the conversation such that anybody listening immediately assumes that they've been called the devil. And, of course, mm-hmm. the person saying that would never want to call that them the devil, but it immediately strips away any possibility to see how love might be operative. Yeah. I think my big breakthrough on that insight was reading N.T. Wright's work on Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. like you get a lot of right. work on Paul, but if you read his work on Jesus, popular, like simply Jesus, or his Jesus and the Victory of God, his more scholarly work, what really struck me about his treatment was the way Jesus enters this very very politicized and uh, violently charged milieu where his countrymen were wanting to, to kill the Romans. I mean, everybody knew that the Romans were the enemy. Yes. And they were demonizing flesh and blood. And that Jesus, as Wright argued, and I cite this in the book, deflects that violence away from flesh and blood, the flesh and blood of the Romans. And he directs it toward this 
what he names the Satan, as a common shared enemy that is bringing Roman and Jew into conflict. And, and that's the paradox of the book. The book is arguing that when we evacuate the language of spiritual warfare, because we're afraid that if we evoke the devil, we'll demonize human beings, the exact opposite actually happens. When we evacuate the language of spiritual struggle, all that is left on the plane of action is that scooby doification yes. because all there are are human beings. Yes. It's, then it's just the good guys against the bad guys. Yes. And it's a, it's a, it, it, what happens is what we're reduced to is a Nietzschean will to power. I just have to get power over um, away from, I have to wrest it away from those bad people. And I think that's why our political, I mean, this year has been awful the, yes. way, the way political. And I think it's because we feel we have to win. We have to take power away from the other group. And, and Jesus somehow is able to use the, the Satan as a way to deflect our aggression towards this shared opponent so that reconciliation and peace and love could manifest itself uh, on earth as it is in heaven. And so I think that was Jesus' insight, yeah. um, is that there is a struggle and there is a fight, um, but it's deflected away from human beings towards, towards a, a shared opponent. Yes. Yeah, I, I love I love right night. I really enjoyed hearing um, your interaction with him on the um, event in Malibu that that uh, I heard you on, and and uh, I've got I'm sitting here looking at Wright's books on Jesus right here. So yes, I I, I think that was a that's a, a fabulous uh, description, which, which moves us to the place that once we. Um, find that we have a shared opponent and that it's not each other. Um, it opens up a different role because you went on in that particular chapter, it opens up a different role where um, it seems as though in the last uh, little bit where we're struggling with uh, the role of the church, the role the church plays, especially in the West, uh, the decline in participation and attendance. And so we've, we've really... Um, uh, going to seed on on kingdom, and a lot of folks really are. Uh, it seems like inclined to. Eh, I don't need the church, but I really need the kingdom, and yet you actually uh, in in uh, uh, paragraphs said that uh, so kingdom is a word that is increasingly being used to separate the work of God in the world from the traditional church. Kingdom means good deeds done for the common good, while church means, well, going to church on a Sunday morning to sing songs, listen to a sermon, drink bad coffee. This clean separation between kingdom and church allows us to blow off the church as being irrelevant, corrupt, or toxic. To pursue the kingdom of God in the world, partnering with others, Christians or not, in making the world a better place. And and then and yet you go on to talk about some of the practices in the church that actually become uh, tools in the battle right. against his common uh, enemy. Did I did I, did yeah, I, I read the, that passage correctly? Yeah, yeah, I think so. The, what happens, I think, when we reduce spiritual warfare to, to social justice, which is that tendency to to say, you know, the kingdom work is digging a well in Africa. Kingdom work is. Um, you know, stopping sex trafficking. That's kingdom right. work. But, you know, rolling out of bed on a Sunday morning and going to church and singing praise songs, that, that doesn't seem to be doing anybody any good. 
And so, um, so kingdom is like the word now for lots of kind of progressive or younger, younger Christians. And, and my argument is the trouble with social, that so move towards social justice as kingdom work is, um, it, it, it allows us to, to escape the mundane and boring and often irritating work. I think you used the word, the, the description of kind of a social irritant earlier in this conversation. Mm-hmm. It allows us to escape loving, concrete human beings where peacemaking and reconciliation, you know, the fires of sanctification are forged in the kind of minutia of just social life. Yes, and indeed. we step we step out of that, the social justice kingdom kingdom narrative, it's just so heroic, you know. I get to play the hero in that, and I get to kind of swoop in and do my good deeds and change the world. Um, but but getting along with somebody who's going to vote differently from me on this next November, like the hard self-mastery that that's going to take, because like I have a very, I have a church where we're all not on the same page politically. And so how do you get along? How do you make peace? You know, so we talk about these things like, hey, we need to get over the polarization in our politics. We need to quit yelling at each other on Facebook, and yet we won't go to church and try to share life with and friendships with people who are very different from who we are. And so I think we're escaping the church because we're afraid of the church. I think G.K. Chesterton said, you know, it's not that Christianity, you know, what was his phrase, you know, that has been tried and found wanting. Yes. That nobody's ever tried it. Yes. Um, And I think the church is the same way. I think we complain about the church, so we don't have to get involved with the church. Because really, anybody who knows investing in a local faith community and and the amount of holiness that it takes to do that. That's right. (laughs) You know, know, is is, uh, knows that that the church is the place where um, the reign of God is best experienced in our midst. Yeah, I, I love the description laboratory of love uh, as, a, as a description of what goes on in the church. And that you, you had another line, um, uh, I like the idea of people. I thought it was classic. I like the idea of people. And in a, in a culture that uh, tends to hide behind social media monikers, that really uh, gets gets expressed then when we try to get together and we realize, man, I should have stayed home um, because those real people are annoying. And, uh, and I think church does um, provide that laboratory, that incubator, if you will, of uh, what um, uh, I think you called it care and peace as the two central uh, elements of what goes on in the life of the church that actually become the means of our warfare. Yeah. Again, so the, when when Paul describes the kingdom of God coming, and this is I, I, I'm not this point is not unique to me, but when Paul describes the kingdom of God coming, he, he's describing these little these little churches he's planted where slave and free and wealthy and poor and men and women are coming together and they're crossing the socioeconomic and shame honor boundaries of the you know Roman culture and they're he just writing these passionate letters to them about, you know, be be of one mind and love each other and forgive each other and show hospitality to each other and wait for each other. You know, it's just that is the work. Yes, it's these diverse, these diverse 
communities, face-to-face, little small bands of believers. That is the work. And it's the work that I think a lot of young people who want a more heroic vision are skipping out on, I think much to their detriment. Oh, yes. Yeah, and I would say uh, um, even to their children, because they're their children don't witness what that looks like. And then that necessarily forms in them a particular expectation of, of what a life, you know, gets played out like, and then crisis comes and, um, they, they don't know how, uh, you know, to, to socially navigate those difficulties. And, um, yeah, yeah. Well, just this, I mean, you know, you, you know, I think was the like most helpful practices in Christianity is like sticking around after church, like right. being some of the last people to leave. I think most spiritual formation occurs in the 30 minutes after church is out. No, I think you're right. Because that's when people are standing around, and, and that's when you notice people who might need a, a ride, or that's when you might, um, somebody actually might get into a little bit of a deeper conversation, because, you know, there's an open-ended window. Their church isn't about to start. And, and Jan and I have just made it a, just a, a discipline that we just are some of the last people to leave. And our kids are running around church. They've been running around church for 30 minutes afterwards. You know, and they see relationships forming um, rather than rushing in five minutes late. You stay 30, 40 minutes later. I just kind of wonder if people stuck around. Right. How much our churches would thrive. So. Maybe that should be a new movement. The most important <laughs> part of church is the thirty minute thirty minutes afterwards. I th- I think you're on to something. I think I notice that uh, there are a number who uh, hang around after we're finished. We we have a space that we use in in different ways. So we put our chairs away after Sunday morning, and so there's a lot of talking and and getting on with each other, and in though that about fifteen minutes or so that that takes, and then that will have spurred a number of conversations around that room. And you might find someone who um, has has been longing to talk to somebody, but because everybody's bolting, there's no one left. And 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 we've got some who do intentionally hang around just for that purpose. And I'm going to have to commend them and tell them that uh, that's a, that is a spiritual uh, uh, formation practice. You know, um, you do. You have a great way of um, drawing in some really significant illustrations. So, in keeping with that, you you um, uh, talk about uh, drinking bad coffee, and in the age of the craft coffee uh, brewery and and the um, even beyond Starbucks, you know, where where you've got local roasting and you've got. You've got these particular vibes of these independent coffee coffee shops. Um, I even heard someone say one time, "Is where do you y'all still drinking coffee out of a can? You know, you're still using coffee that's in a can. It's not in a bag. Yeah. And it's not being ground. You know." And and the complaint was, "Is that's not really great coffee?" Um, but but you use that um, uh, to say that drinking bad coffee is saving the world. Uh, describe that just a little bit for for listeners. Maybe they'd be okay with drinking a bad cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. well, I use it just because you know that's the knock. You know, that, that I heard the same knock about church, right? Where my church, we have these old school, big old percolators, you know, that we use, right. and we're using coffee out of the can. So, you know, from an aesthetic point of view, this is pretty bad coffee. 
And so, um, so that became for me a metaphor of like, why, why would I do that? Like, why would I get up on the Sunday morning and not go to Starbucks and go to a very nice place that you know, has good coffee and it's got a cool, fun, hip vibe? Why would I go sit around drinking coffee out of a can with these people that, you know, I hardly know and half of them I don't really like all that much? Like, what's the point of all that? But if the point is, as we've been talking about, um, forming surprising friendships, you know, the discipline of standing there and drinking your bad coffee with these very different kinds of people brought together, called out of the world um, by the call of Jesus. And you find yourself in these conversations that you, you might have never, these people might have not have been a part of your life. I think American society is so segregated now mm-hmm. across vocational and educational lines that church, for me, is a place where I'm intersecting across blue collar and white collar and poor and rich and white and black and Hispanic, um, that church becomes the the intersection of those worlds. And um, But if I go to Starbucks and get my $5 cup of coffee and pop open my Mac laptop and put in my earbuds, like I'm just, you know, um, Jesus isn't working on me and I'm not working for Jesus in, mm-hmm. in, that, in that kind of bubble of self-absorption. Oh, I, I agree completely. I I, uh, I, I want to keep pushing that just a little bit because in just following kind of that that section, you you then actually begin to describe some of the things that go on in community. So, if drinking bad coffee is representational of what it means to kind of spend time with a cross section of people and not not in isolation, you you, you remark that. That uh, a true community, which I think, frankly, is a, a, a new buzzword. If kingdom is kind of the the, the vogueish word, community is also that word, and I'm not sure mm-hmm. everybody really understands because when I when I hear a lot of young people using community, I, I hear them with a, a kind of a romantic air, you know, and so mm-hmm. I, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll use this. We just want to share life, you know. We 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 want to have community. And and yet your description is that true community brings us in contact with people who expose our jealousies, impatience, intolerance, pettiness, selfishness, and vanity. <laughs> now, if you knew that true community, you probably wouldn't be signing up for it. Right. You know, you might well, be avoiding it. Yeah, that, that quote, those, those words come from Jean Vanier, the founder of the L'Arche community, where people live with um, physically and mentally handicapped people. And... Um, and to me, he's, he's such a great witness to what true community really is. Yes, and he is. It is a beautiful, it's a beautiful vision that he paints of the large community. Um, but, but he's the first one in his books to talk about the self-overcoming and the self-mortification and the kind of renunciations that we have to give up. And, 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 and I, I think... People know that because, yeah, we do romanticize community, but then you ask any church leader, when you kind of make those venues available and you kind of say, let's do it, then the people, the very people that are crying for community are the very people that aren't showing up. That's exactly right. And and, and, and I think there's kind of a paradox there. We're awfully lonely. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a feedback loop. We're very lonely in American society. And, and yet, uh, and, and some of the reasons why we're so lonely is we're so busy 
And so we, but the very thing that's kind of killing us, our busyness, is interfering with our ability to kind of overcome our loneliness. And so I think a lot of Americans, young, particularly young families, young professionals, are trapped um, because they're on the professional wheel, you know, the, the kind of the, the racing ahead to get ahead that they're running on that on that wheel, but um, they're suffering because of it. And then, so when church makes space and opportunities, they're just not available for it. The cost is too high. No, I, I think that's right. I, I couldn't help reading that section, um, think of both Henry Nouwen and uh, also uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his little book, Life Together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't help but, but think of those two as well as Vanier that, that, uh, that you quote there. But uh, I, I think that that's, you, you know, you don't want it, to, it's very hard to say, um, you need community for precisely these reasons that make you uncomfortable. That doesn't sell very yeah. well. You know, that, that doesn't, that doesn't sell well. Come to our small group so you can be miserable and discover all the, uh, your own all idiosyncrasies and uh, all the ways yeah. you're jealous and, and petulant <laughs> and that sort of thing, you know? So, um, while I think you're right, it's busy. I think also there, we're just fearful of ourselves, like you were describing, such to the to the degree that we'll avoid the places where we are fearful we might come face to face with ourselves. And um, we we see that even I mean, we see that from time to time, um, and I've seen that over the years. Um, yeah, and I, and I do try. To, I do try to in that chapter, though, do kind of share, you know, a, a pretty. I won't retell it here, but you know, a, a, a real beautiful story about the way when you make yourself available, you're often surprised in really beautiful ways and life giving ways. So, so it's not all yeah negative. No, was that or, the story of it, Jeff? Yeah, that's the story of Jeff. Right? Oh, yeah. that was beautiful. Um, Golly, that was and, beautiful. And, and so, but but you have to make yourself available to it. That's, that's exactly right. Is, is, is it, you have to make yourself available to it, um, and yet it, we're not. And so we're our, kind of our own worst enemies there. Yeah, I, I think the I think there was an interesting intersection in prepping for the sermon the, the Sunday after uh, I read your book that the the text and some of the themes and such melded so together that I if I remember correctly I stood up and said if it were possible I would just assign you a book to read you should go home and read it and uh, but that I, I knew you wouldn't do it so I I just instead I, I referenced a few <laughs> few bits along the way and and I, I referenced that story of Jeffrey and and uh, your quote from Vanier um, so, you know, we talk kind of around, uh, the, the subject of, uh, demons and the devil for doubters and skeptics, this reviving of old scratch. And so since I'm going to put it out there, you know, hopefully people will, will buy your book, listen to the podcast and, and hit, head over to your website, experimentaltheology.blogspot.com. Uh, I'm wondering if you might help, help tell us. I, I read Reviving Old Scratch and wondered, what in the world? Where did that come from? Do you mind just kind of replaying real quickly that where, where that where that title kind of originates from? Oh, Are yeah. You? It was, uh, it was, it was uh, I teach a Bible, we haven't talked much about this, but I teach a Bible study um, every Monday night out at a maximum security prison north of town here. And uh, my co-teacher, um, Herb Patterson, was uh, leading a prayer one night and in the middle of the prayer said, uh, Lord... Help us, Lord, protect us from old scratch. And I kind of did a double take and said, "What? What did he just play? Old scratch? I've never heard of it." 
So after the prayer ended, I just asked her, I said, what, who is that? He was incredulous. He, Herb is a generation older than I am, and he was grew up in the South. And apparently in the South, a generation ago, you'll still hear it in the South, um, old scratch is just a name, colloquialism for the devil. And so, uh, so that that is uh, became the title of the book. wasn't the original title of the book. The publisher just thought it was so quirky and interesting. He thought people would grab it just to find out who old scratch was. But um, I, I think I, they're I, right. Yeah, it's a fascinating title. Yeah. Well, well, maybe on that note, we we can uh, kind of maybe uh, close with just a quick um, couple of minutes. You know, so um, those who listen here and and some of my friends will will vacillate wildly from maybe being maddened to the idea that uh, um, uh, there are people who have no enchantment when it comes to talking about Satan or demons. They've really given into the skepticism, uh, and, and they're, they're kind of concerned. Um, and, and then, and then conversely, others who have, have lived there, um, are, are maybe kind of wrestling with how might I experience some of this re-enchantment so that I, I don't, um, settle down into, uh, choosing for my opponents, flesh and blood, another human being, but I, I, I really need to be looking for this common foe. And, and, and in your book, Get Behind Me, uh, in your chapter, Get Behind Me, Satan, uh, you, you describe it this way, the satanic is everything which tempts us away from taking up our cross in following Jesus. This is critical for a theology of spiritual warfare, as the cross of Jesus is the quintessential expression of self-giving, self-donating, and sacrificial love. The satanic and the demonic are all those forces tempting us away from this love. Now, I have to, do you, did you have in mind there that that might be a way to to express the the uh, breadth of what that common force or foe uh, is experienced as? Oh yeah, because I think like like we were talking about before. I think what ends up happening is the conversation when you get into the devil, it becomes really narrow. It becomes, do you believe in demon possession? And no matter how you come out on that, skeptical or believer, that's just not a day-to-day kind of worry for a lot of people. Right. Which means basically that 99.9% of the conversation about the devil is functionally irrelevant for people's lives. Yes. You know, um, yes, maybe somewhere in my town, somebody's being possessed, but, but it's just not a day to day when the mother gets up, she starts to drive her kids to school. It's not a worry. Right. Um, if, you know, it's, or when I'm standing in line at a supermarket, you know, the devil's just really not on my mind. So, so I went back to Jesus and said, you know, when does Jesus invoke the Satan? And what is the kind of paradigm for him? And it's when he says he's going to go to the cross and Peter tempts him away from that. And Jesus spins on him and says, get behind me, Satan. Mm-hmm. It's a very, you know, very distinctive story, very particular, unique story in the Gospels. And so if the Satan is the opponent or the adversary, then that's what Peter was doing. He was getting in the way of the cross. Yes. And if the cross, therefore, becomes how we envision spiritual warfare, then it becomes immediately relevant across all spheres of life, from the smallest to the biggest. And the conversation becomes back to your point, much broader and more inclusive and more relevant, um, depressingly relevant for what I do today, minute to minute, hour by hour. Sure. 
and I think that if not to oversimplify it, but maybe to uh, create even more curiosity, your um, move then is to talk about that with that sort of breadth of warfare we're talking about uh, and that the cross being kind of that, that uh, quintessential place, you, uh, you say this, that spiritual warfare being true to love in a world that hath neither joy nor love nor light nor peace nor hope for pain. That, that a lot of times some of us grew up in hearing these really wild stories about these, um, you know, these battles uh, and like you said, very, very really, rare, yeah, very, really very rare, you know. Yeah. Um, but everyone encounters um, the world, as you described it, lonely, cold, and mean. And to counter that, the warfare of that sort of life with a cross-cruciform kind of life is then to practice something that you can practice, um, mm-hmm. uh, love. And that really is kind of where you settle in. So, uh, tell us when you when you when you are referencing love, you're not talking about a sentimentality. Uh, what what's the breadth? How would you how would you describe that to someone who who might uh, view this conversation? And say, well, there are those liberals go. There's just everything's love, love, love. Sometimes I'll use uh, I will yeah, emphasize right. love, and I get that same kind of thing, and have to say, but that's not what we're talking about. And you have to kind of take one more step and say, but this is the shape, this is what. So how would you respond to to that? Well, you know, my conversion story, as I tell people when it comes to the, the spiritual warfare, is um, one night I was teaching at the Bible study at the prison, I was going through the Beatitudes, and I tell this story in the book, and I was going through the Beatitudes, and I hit, blessed are the meek, and I got this big pushback from the prisoners, skepticism, mm-hmm. and which I had never encountered before. Like, who, like, what Christian audience doesn't like the Beatitudes? You know, this is like perfect Sunday school material. And, and they rejected it as just unfeasible. They just said, you can't be meek in the prison. Meekness is mistaken for weakness. And I remember that night going, huh, the way of Jesus is difficult in the world. It, it faces opposition. It, it, the world is a dark place. And, and then I remember standing out in the parking lot afterwards realizing, but maybe that's particularly so in the prison, but it's the same in the world. Sure. You know, meekness is not ever a smart way to get ahead in the world. And so that was the first kind of dawning realization where I realized the way of Jesus in the world is a daily struggle that's, that is described by Paul as foolishness. It doesn't make any sense at all to, to live gently and meekly and lovingly in a world that is full, that is kind of addicted to power and uh, dominance and success stories. Um, nobody wants to be the failure or the loser or the weak one. And so it's, this is the least sentimental thing in the world, yes. to really follow Jesus, to, to step into a servant-oriented life. That's not sentimental at all. Like if you're doing the dishes for your family, you know, or you're cleaning the toilet, you know, for your family, you know, as an act of love, then oh, you call that sentimental. But I, I kind of think that's kind of where the, the battle is going to be fought. Um, and, and those locations of service, wherever we find ourselves in life, um, yeah, there's nothing sentimental about the way of Jesus at all. Because it, it's often going to be being in a corner, serving in very overlooked kinds of ways in a culture 
where everybody wants to be on stage and under the spotlight. Yes. Um, and and who wants to go stand in the corner with Jesus? Right. Um, you know, and, uh, like one of my favorite stories of Mother Teresa. And this might be apocryphal, but but it sounds like her that she was at a, she was at a uh, event where they're giving her an award and they couldn't find her to give her the award. And when they eventually found her, she was in the kitchen helping the kitchen staff serve the meal that every all the you know dignitaries were eating out, you know, in the ballroom. You know, so that's where she is. Um, and that's that's not to me a very sentimental view of love. That that to well, me looks right. like following Jesus to the cross. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, Richard, I, I want to say a, a great big thank you for giving me some time out of your day. I. Again, I, I thoroughly was challenged and inspired by uh, your book, Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted. And I'll certainly hope that those who listen in will uh, venture over to wherever they like to buy their books and they'll pick up a copy and uh, uh, really engage uh, your themes. Uh, boy, the way you write is really great, and I think you've, you've given us a gift. And I just want to say thank you. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, I'd love to, Todd. Thank you for the conversation. Yep. I appreciate it. Great yep. deal. Uh, thank you. Hey, this is Todd again. Thanks for listening to Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. We have a number of uh, podcasts uh, and, inter- and podcast interviews lined up. So uh, download in your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, any of those, and it'll be delivered right to your iPhone, right to your iPad, or to your computer. As always, uh, you could help us by sharing the podcast and giving us a review and rating over it uh, in the iTunes library. That helps us get found and spreads the word. Pathological is an affiliate podcast with Roundtable Media Group. If you'd like to advertise with the Roundtable Media Group, Email me at Todd at RoundTableMediaGroup.com, and we'll get you hooked up. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, peace.